Now I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 5. The title of the sermon, No God But God. I don't know if that phrase sounds familiar to anyone. It's a phrase that has become a little bit more popular in the past, say, 10 years. A phrase that has um, found a little bit more of a highlight in media, news and such. It's of particular notoriety because it is used in the Islamic world called the Shahada or the Testimony which declares this, that there is no God but God, and then they tack on after that, and Muhammad is his prophet. And that is what's called the Shahada, the testimony in Islam, that there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. Islam is one of the three primary religions in the world that we would call monotheistic. A monotheistic religion is a religion that uh, mono meaning one, theistic meaning God, that recognizes only one God instead of a, a plurality of gods, what we would call a polytheistic religion. And the majority of the religions that have cropped up in the world have been polytheistic religions, religions that have different gods for different situations or different circumstances. You think of, say, um, Greek mythology or the Roman god system, and they had um, their various gods, a pantheon of gods, we'd say, and there was the prime god, Zeus, right? He was kind of the head god. And then, um, or Jupiter in, in the Roman, it was the same same God, and then they would have all of their lesser gods that the, the main God commissioned and created for his purposes. And so you'd have a God of love, and you'd have a God of fertility, and you'd have a God of the harvest, and you'd have a God of the sun, and a God of the moon, and, and a God of this, and a God of that, and then you'd have your God of the underworld, and, and all of these different gods. And so the majority of religions are, are polytheistic in that they believe in multiple gods. Islam Judaism and Christianity are monotheistic in that they believe there is only one God. Now, it's interesting, though, while all three of these religions claim that there is only one God, they all believe different things about the nature of that God. All three religions have a different God. All three religions believe there's only one God. The Jews believe in the God of the, we, we, we could say the God of the Old Testament, they believe in the God of the Bible, but they do not believe that Jesus Christ is the manifestation of that God. So they don't properly understand the nature of this God. Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So by the nature of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ's statements, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, then you do not have the true God. So Judaism has a false God. They call him Jehovah, but they have rejected the means by which to have a relationship with that God, and thus by extension they have rejected God himself. They worship a false God. Islam is very similar. They claim to worship the one true God, whom they call Allah. 
Quite regularly, you will hear misguided people in religious circles say that the God of Islam is the God of the Bible, that Allah is Jehovah, that Allah is simply Islam's word for God, and so they're just using the word God in the same way a Jew would use the word Jehovah in the same way the Christian would use the word God. This is simply not true. In a manner of speaking, Allah is God and that the word Allah in the Arabic does mean God and they claim to worship God, but just as the Jews claim to worship Jehovah God, but they miss it because they don't have Christ, so too Islam claims to worship the true and living God, but they miss him because they're not going through the only means by which to get to God, which is Christ. They claim to worship the true God, but they have rejected Jesus as God. He is only a prophet in their religion, and therefore he's not God. He is not Messiah. They have exalted the teachings of a false prophet named Muhammad as their representative and teacher, and in doing so, just like the Jews, they have rejected the true God which is through Christ, and thus having rejected God himself, they have erected a false worship system around a false god named Allah. Now, through history, there have always been false gods. We talked about them a little bit already. Man was created with an inherent need to worship. Did you know that? Man must worship something. It's deep inside of us that we have to worship. No man goes without worship. The atheist says they do. They don't. For the past year, year and a half, uh, atheists have been creating atheist churches. Have you been reading about those? Where they come together to meet and they're trying to fulfill what they say is a social need. But what they're doing is they're coming together and they're worshiping the God of secular humanism, which is man. They're worshiping themselves. and, And secular humanism is a religion. Atheism is a religion just as much as any other religion. There must be a God because mankind, it's built into man that there's something bigger than us. There's something higher than us. It is built into us. By nature, the reason why man feels compelled to worship something is so that he can, oftentimes, so that he can tap into that God for personal benefit and blessing, right? We know there's something higher and we know we need the benefit of that higher thing, so we worship it to tap into it. Now, such is the case in our text today. As we step into 1 Samuel chapter 5, we're going to step into um, the, the dealings surrounding a false worship system and how that false worship system and that false God interact with the true and living God. A battle over who is in control. Is it the false God or is it the true God? And in this battle, as in every battle of such nature, the true and living God will prevail. So you're in 1 Samuel chapter 5, and as we've done, uh, it's more narrative style. I'm not necessarily going to read every verse, but you can follow along quite easily um, as I go from verse to verse. We will read verse 1, though. In 1 Samuel 5, verse 1, the text tells us this, The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So this assumes that you know what has gone before. So let's take a a brief moment. I believe everyone, most of you were here last week, but but let's take a brief moment um, to review what we talked about last week. The nation of Israel sought the power of the Ark of the Covenant to deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. Do you remember that? This was at best an attempt to manipulate God into helping them. At worst, it was an attempt to actually make the Ark of the Covenant 
itself their God, trusting in the ark instead of trusting in Jehovah. Now, either way, it didn't work. The first time the nation went out, they lost 4,000. Then they went to get the ark. They brought the ark. And the next time they went out, they lost 30,000 men. 30,000 men were killed on the battlefield against the Philistines. And the ark of God, recall, was taken. And we talked just in passing last time about the significance of the ark of the covenant being taken. We saw this significance in how the people responded. Recall that there was a messenger that came from the battle and he had rent his clothes and he was weeping and he said uh, that Israel had lost that day. They had fled before their enemies, that many people had been killed, that Hophni and Phinehas had been killed. And Eli says, okay, okay, as as Eli is receiving this report as the high priest and he hears all these things and he just wants to get to what happened to the ark And the messenger says, and the ark of God was taken. And Eli, being so startled that the ark of God had been taken, falls back off of his chair and breaks his neck and dies. Phineas' wife hears about the the events of the day and she hears about her her father-in-law having died and her husband having died. And these things trouble her. And then she hears about the ark of God being taken and she goes into labor. And she has a hard labor because of the circumstances and she ends up dying in labor. And uh, the the midwife of Phineas laments and she tried to get um, Phineas' wife, what would you like to call the child? It's a man-child. What would you like to call her? And and she doesn't respond. She's dead already or incapacitated at least at that point. And so the the midwife names Phineas' second son Ichabod, meaning no glory. And she said, because, not because Eli has died today, not because Phineas has died this day, not because Israel has been slaughtered specifically, but specifically because the ark of God has been taken and the glory of God has departed from Israel. Can you see the impact of the ark of God and it being taken upon culture? Two people are dead and a son's name is derived from this Horrible, horrible event. The perception of, of destruction and of loss and of, of wicked, evil that comes because the ark has been taken. The nation saw this as a deep, deep tragedy. Since the days of the Exodus, God had specifically stated that He would dwell with His people above the ark, above the mercy seat. And if that's where the glory of God would reside, this is where God would dwell among His people. Now that the object was gone, the people perceived that with it went the presence of God, the protection of God, the blessing of God. They didn't understand that that had already left them with their sin. The blessing and protection and provision of God was already missing from the nation because they were sinning before Him unrepentantly. But that was their perception. And it was a deep, dark time in their history. And we find in verse 1 that the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant from Ebenezer, which you recall is where Israel had been encamping, and they took it to a city named Ashdod. This was one of their chief cities. I've told you before that the Philistine nation was made up of several what we might call city-states. It would be similar to, to different states today. It's one United States, but we have 50 states in our union. 48 contiguous, and then uh, Hawaii and Alaska. And so we, uh, we, we would perceive it as 
um, they conquered this the Israel and they went from Ebenezer to one of the capitals of one of their states, one of their city-states. And quite literally, we'll see in just a moment, according to verse 2, they take the ark into the house of their god Dagon and they set it, the, the scriptures say by Dagon, literally we'll see, they set, him in, they set the ark in front of Dagon. By setting the ark before Dagon, the Philistines were openly declaring the superiority of their god, whose name was Dagon, to the God of Israel. And they were seeking to thank their God for bringing into their um, midst this blessing, for giving them victory in the battle. And they were thanking their God by taking this um, token of victory over Jehovah God and placing it before Dagon. They took the most significant representation of God's presence and God's power and they placed it before their false God almost as a sacrifice of uh, acknowledging the power of God. Now, before we continue in the text, let's take a few moments to understand who this false god, Dagon, was, or we might say is. It was very typical for gods of pagan nations to resemble something very important in their society. The Philistines were a coastal people. They lived uh, from, they, they migrated from the northern area of the Mediterranean, what we would um, see today as, as getting near Greece and, and Syria and such, and they migrated from there down the coast to the area of Palestine or Canaan, and they always stayed on the coast. They were a coastal people, and so by nature of their experiences and understanding, fish would be very important to them. The, the fishing lifestyle would be essential as a part of their lifestyle. So they, um, f- when they were forming the god, and, and of course it's very typical of pagan gods to form a god in the image of something, as we mentioned, that's important or, or in their own image, they formed him as a man-fish hybrid. He was probably at least the god in Ashdod. It would have been a stone idol carved in the image of this false god, and he probably would have been very large. So we're talking about walking into a temple and seeing a large God in the same way you might walk into a Catholic church and see a large crucifix or a large Jesus statue. The same idea um, of a very large stone engraved God uh, in, in the uh, forefront of the temple. They placed the ark before him, acknowledging his power. Not just that they were victorious over the Israelites, but that Dagon was victorious over Jehovah God. Now, of course, this poses a big problem, right? Because God is not at the mercy of mankind's failings. Though Israel that day could not receive the blessing of God because they had failed uh, to be righteous before him, that doesn't mean that God, uh, his name has to be tarnished. And he allowed them to be defeated, but he was not going to allow his holy name to be destroyed before these heathen. God was nowhere near that battle for Israel that day. His presence was not there that day. Dagon had no power. Their false god had no power over Jehovah God on that day. God was withholding His blessing, withholding His presence because they had rejected Him through rebellion. And God is about to vindicate His name over this false god, Dagon. So in verse 3, we are taken immediately to the day after the ark is placed before Dagon. The Philistines wake up in the morning. 
And they go to worship their God and the priests walk in and Dagon is on his face before the ark. Prostrate, we might say in a, in a, uh, a uh, position of worship before the ark of the covenant. Philistines enter the temple, they find this out. It's curious, right? It seems unlikely that they would have made Dagon to be unstable. So they probably didn't teeter on any given day where you know, thunder would make it teeter or whatnot. It was probably pretty stable, but somehow it, it found its way onto its face before the ark. Curious, interesting coincidence. They get a bunch of levies and, uh, levers and pulleys and they, they get this thing back on its scales and it's, it's erected again. Here you go, Dagon. You fell over. Let, let us help you up, Dagon. Let, let us get you back on your fins. Uh, here you go, Dagon. Sorry you fell over. Oh, great God of ours. The next day comes, we see in verse 4. They arise early the next day and the priests are happy. They go into the temple and here's Dagon on his belly, we might say again, on his face, except his face is not connected to the rest of his body anymore. This time, the stump of Dagon is on its face before the ark and the head and the hands have been cut off. It's, it's getting a little bit more than just coincidence now. Now their God doesn't just fall over, but their God's head falls off. This is not, uh, it's showing a real problem with the God that they've chosen to worship. And they start to see that maybe gloating over Jehovah God and placing uh, a, a strong comparison between the strength of their God and the strength of Jehovah God was not a very good idea. Well, pagan religions are, by their very nature, quite superstitious. Verse 5 tells us that, therefore, because of this, because the God fell over and they had to get him back up, and then the God fell over and his head fell off and his arms were cut off, and he was lying there before the ark with no head and no hands. Because of this, these events, there would not be any Philistine who would anymore go into the temple of Dagon and walk upon the threshold. They would not walk upon the place where the Ark of the Covenant had been laid. So for the rest of the time that in Ashdod this temple existed, there was a constant remembrance of the power of Jehovah God in Dagon's temple because they would not set foot on the place where the Ark of Jehovah God rested. They knew that this was a God of gods, a God above their God, a God greater than their God, publishing the superiority of Jehovah God in their own temple by not walking on the threshold. But it wasn't just Dagon that felt the wrath of Jehovah God for this breach. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that the hand of the Lord was very heavy upon Ashdod, the city, as well. In verse 6, we see that the people were, the Scriptures tell us, destroyed with smote destroyed with emeralds. The identification of the, what the King James translates emeralds is uncertain. Some people believe it was a plague of sorts. And in fact, we'll find in the next chapter that when the Philistines are um, um, making their little peace offerings to God, trying to appease his wrath, they make those peace offerings in two shapes, in the shape of emeralds and in the shape of mice. 
So many people believe that it was mice that brought whatever this was in, and it would not reduce the, the efficacy of God's judgment by using natural things. And so uh, it's quite possible that mice could have brought a plague into um, this area. However, we do see it as miraculous, divine judgment. The word emerald in the Hebrew is the idea of a, of a boil or an ulcer, a bleeding ulcer, a bleeding boil, something very painful, deeply inhibiting. In fact, the word emerald, uh, as used in the King James, is the word from which we get our word hemorrhoid today. It's uh, a derivative of the same word. So the city is writhing in agony. And they knew exactly where this plague had come from. It was no mystery. The plague had come because they had the ark. It was the heavy hand of Jehovah God upon them. He cut off the hand and the head of their God. And now he's coming after them and there's nothing that they can do about it. Well, there's one thing they can do about it. They can shove their problem off on someone else. And that's what they did. They immediately sought to move the ark from the city and they looked at another city-state the capital of another city-state, and they said, Hey, Gath, you guys want this ark, this great trophy of our victory over Israel? Here, let's let you all have it for just a little while. Take, take this ark. You, you get to hold the trophy. It's kind of like after you know, a team wins, a uh, hockey team wins the Stanley Cup or football team wins the Lombardi Trophy. They let each guy take it home for a couple of days. Well, Ashdod's like, hey, Gath, we've had enough time with this ark. Now, it's, uh, here you go. You can have the trophy for a little while. So Gath says, hey, great. That's wonderful. And they carry it to Gath. Perhaps Gath was far enough distance away that they weren't afraid of the disease. Perhaps Gath, uh, they felt it was maybe a stronger spiritual stronghold. Uh, so maybe, maybe the god Dagon and Gath is a little bit stronger than Dagon and Ashdod and, and he'll be able to, to handle it. Whatever the case may be, we're not quite sure, but they got rid of it. Gath ends up with the ark. Now, verse 9 tells us that, uh, that Gath got the ark and the hand of the Lord was very heavy against that city now. And verse 9 says, with a very great destruction. It says, he smote the men of the city, both small and great, and they had the emeralds in their secret parts. So he is smiting the city. They're getting the emeralds as well in the city. And it's not just this time making them uh, writhe in pain. It's actually, this plague is killing them. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? We'll find that out in verse 12. But this time people are dying because of this plague. Um, people are in pain, and those that aren't uh, dead are in deep pain. Now, one bad turn, of course, deserves another. So Gath figures out pretty quick what Ashdod did, and they say, well, we don't want this anymore, so it's time to move this problem on to another city in Philistia. And so it was in Ashdod, and now Ashdod uh, got rid of it, and they're happy. And now it's in Gath, and Gath says, it's time to get rid of it. Let's send it on to Akron, or Ekron, excuse me. So they, they send the ark to Ekron, and the scriptures tell us that as the ark was cresting over the hill, and Ekron saw the ark of God, they cried out with a great voice and said, they've brought this ark to kill us. Don't allow this ark into our city. So now we've got a real problem here. Ashdod had it. They don't want it. Gath had it. They don't want it. The hand of God is heavy upon everybody that, that is receiving this ark. And now Ekron's saying, don't you dare let that ark into this city. We don't want it. Nobody wants it. Uh, all the Philistines get together in verse 11 
gathered all the lords together, all of the, the leaders of each of these cities, and they say, what should we do? Well, the solution is simple. They say, send it back to Israel. We don't want it anymore. See, here's the thing. When the Philistines fought Israel, the Philistines were winning because Israel was in sin and, and so God was not blessing them. But now that the Philistines are trying to fight the God of Israel, they, they have no solution to this battle. They cannot win this. They say, send it to its own place, verse 11, that it doesn't kill us anymore for there was deadly destruction throughout all the city. Scriptures tell us the hand of God was very heavy there. They come to the conclusion that the best way to preserve the strength of their own nation and by proxy, the best way to maintain their strength over Israel was actually to give them their box back. Get this ark out of Philistia, send it back to Israel. And so verse 12 tells us the fallout from the ark's presence in the Philistines' land. The men that died not were smitten with emeralds, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Many were dead. Those that were not dead were miserable with this plague, misery all around. And that brings us to the end of, of chapter 5. We'll pick up uh, next time we're together in two weeks with what's going to happen now that the ark comes back. And there's some important lessons to learn. But today I'd like us to consider this idea. The idea of God. Who God is and what He is. As believers, we shouldn't just sit around rejoicing in the misery of the wicked. The Scriptures make it clear that we are to be compassionate to the wicked, seeing them not as enemies, but rather as men and women in need of salvation. The point of the text today, the point of 1 Samuel 5, is not to give us an opportunity to gloat over the suffering of the unrighteous. The point of the text is to teach and to vindicate God's holiness. This chapter is not about the Philistines. It's about God. It's not about the Philistines' false God. It's about God defending His power, defending His great name, defending His holiness against the people that have rejected Him and are seeking to elevate false gods above Him. And with that in mind, I'd like us to take a moment as we apply this morning to consider who our God is, to gain an understanding of Him, to extol His name, and then we'll apply these truths to our lives in a real and meaningful way. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 8, tell us this about God. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who, as I, shall call and shall declare it, and set an order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have I told thee from that time, and have I declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. There is, a, is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. God declares that there is no God, but the God of the Bible. He says this just one chapter later in Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 9. I am the Lord. There is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. 
Pastor, what does he mean, I create evil? Well, he's contrasting it with the idea of peace. It's not that God is the creator of evil. We know that God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. We know that God was not the originator of evil, much less evil is a rebellion against who God is. But just as God can allow peace to um, come over a land, he can allow that word evil, meaning literally calamity, to come into a land as well. As God can allow peace in a nation, so he can allow that peace to end. As God can bring peace to a soul, so he can allow that peace to end. And so it's a very important distinction to make that God is not creating evil. That's not what this means here. It means that uh, in the same way God can allow peace to to begin, he can likewise allow peace to end. He continues in Isaiah 45 saying this, I, the Lord, do all these things. Drop down ye heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, What makest thou or thy work? He hath no hands. See what the prophet is saying here as he declares God to be the God of gods. He uses the illustration of a pot. He says this, Let pots strive with other pots, but don't let this pot strive with the one that made it. Pots are going to, if, if, if pots are going to strive, okay, they're going to strive with other things of their own creation, but the pot has no ability or authority or capacity to strive with the one who created it. The pot can say he created himself, but he didn't. The pot can start worshiping other pots, but they didn't create him. It doesn't change the truth. And it's that illustration that God is attempting to use as he speaks to Israel here about himself, that you should not strive with your maker. You might strive one with another as created beings, but woe to the one that strives with his maker. But in today's world, as we know, we need to go just a step farther than declaring God to be God. Because, as we've mentioned, Judaism claims to worship God. Islam claims to worship God. Christianity claims to worship God. They all claim that there's only one God. And yet we know that these are not the same God. So who is correct? The reason why this is important is because God will not share his right to rule. God is not the kind of a God who will, will, will only take half of the glory. And all these religions are true in that there is no God but God. But the second half of Islam's statement, and Muhammad is his prophet, or the idea in Judaism that Jehovah God is not, has not revealed his Messiah, are both deeply false. So when we say this morning that there is no God but Jehovah God, allow me to clarify who this God is that we serve. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the scriptures tell us this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. These verses introduce us to a person called the Word. And they tell us that the Word is God. 
The Word made all things. The Word is life, and the Word is light. This is God. If Isaiah 44 and 45 are true, then there is no God but one God, that there is only one God, and He will not share His glory with any other God, and that there is no God that He knows of other than Himself which means that the Word must be this God. Certainly, if the Word made all that is, and He is life, and He must then be the God of the Old Testament. For God of the Old Testament claimed to create all that is. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And it is God who is over all that is, giving life and light. So the Word is God. By testimony and by action, we know this to be true. Verse 14 of John 1 tells us this. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Scriptures tell us that the One who is the Word, who is God, who made all things, who sustains all things, became a man and dwelt among men. Men beheld His glory, Men spoke with Him. He spoke with them. So God was made flesh, and there is no mystery in the Scripture as to the identity of this One who is God in flesh. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Word who was made flesh and dwelt among us. At the birth of Jesus, He was called Emmanuel, literally meaning God with us. Throughout His life, He healed the sick. He healed the lame. He commanded the creation, the waves to still, and they obeyed Him. And perhaps most importantly of all, He declared Himself to have the authority to forgive sins. In Matthew 9, verses 5 and 6, the Scriptures tell us, Jesus speaking, For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. Jesus has the power on earth to forgive sins because he is God. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. We see the testimony of John the evangelist in 1 John 5, 7. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. One God, three persons, but one God, the God that the Bible teaches, Jehovah God, His Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus is God, and on the testimony of Isaiah 44 and 45, there is only one God, and there is no God but God. And so we dig down to the reality that if Jesus claimed to be God, then he was either a lunatic or he was who he said he was. Now, the Jews rejected him, said heresy, that you would call yourself God ignoring the fact that He had healed the sick and the lame, that He commanded creation, that He had power to forgive sins, that He would rise from the dead. But the testimony of all Scripture is that Jesus is God. So we compare Isaiah 40, and you want, you want physical proof here? Biblical proof? Let's look at this. Comparing Isaiah 44, 6 to Revelation 1, 17. It's going to be a little smaller than you're used to. I apologize for that. But let's compare them. Isaiah 44, 6 says this. 
Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Now look at Jesus' testimony in Revelation 1.17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Jesus called himself the first and the last. Jehovah called himself the first and the last. Are we having a God feud here? We're not. Jesus is Jehovah God. There is no God but God. And Jesus is his name. One more important point that we said at the beginning that bears repeating. John 14.6, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You cannot get to God any other way but through Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is God and he declared that he is the only way to get to God. He is the exclusive means of accessing God and the exclusive means of pleasing God. All other gods, be they material or spiritual, are false gods. Buddha is a false god. The Dalai Lama is a false god. Allah is a false god. Environment is a false god. Government is a false god. Economic systems, false god. Anything that we would place in the place of the true and living God who is not God is a false god. All other gods are cheap copies. An attempt to satisfy man's inherent need to be worship, to, to worship. But simply worshiping something is not enough, ladies and gentlemen. It's not enough just to worship something. Something will not get you to heaven. Jesus Christ says only He will get you to heaven. I am the way, He said, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The Philistines were worshiping something. That something was called Dagon. It was a half fish, half man piece of stone. They sought Dagon's power over their enemies. They sought material prosperity. And when they found what they sought, they gave Dagon the glory. But Dagon was nothing more than stone. He fell over. His hands and head could be chopped off. And as we look around at the world around us, we see worshipers all around us of false gods. Finding the pleasure and prosperity they seek, but just like the Philistines, whose victory compelled them to gloat over the true and living God, God always vindicates His holy name. The Scriptures tell us in Isaiah 45.23, just a few verses from where we read before, I have sworn by Myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. There is coming a day when every knee will bow to God. Every tongue will confess God to be the only and the true God. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 gives us more insight into this declaration. Look what it says. That at the name of Jesus, Every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
The Scriptures tell us that Jesus is God and there is coming a day when every person, past, present, and future, will bow their knee before Him and declare Him to be the only God. Every religion will bow their knee before Jesus and declare Him to be the only true God. Every person that claims no religion will bow themselves before Jesus and claim Him to be the only true God. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us here. There is no God but God and Jesus is His name. Jesus is God and He will not stand competition. I speak first to anyone in this room that may have never received Jesus as their Savior, who have never accepted the reality of salvation through Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that we are all sinners. That because we're sinners, the Scriptures tell us, the wages of sin, the payment of sin is death. Separation from God. And this is why people are doing, they do so much of what they do today. This is why... Uh, people in Islam are killing people and, th- and knocking down uh, buildings and blowing buildings up and such because they're trying to please their God and get to heaven because they recognize something. And it's true that God is God and we are not. And there's a place, there's an eternity, there's an afterlife. And so everyone in this world is scurrying for the way to be pleasing to God, to find some standing before God, to be acceptable to God. But Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that we are all as an unclean thing. And all of our righteousnesses, every good that we could possibly do are as filthy rags to God. We're memorizing Romans 4, 4, and 5 this month, which tells us that to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt that when we try to work our way to heaven, we can't get there because the, the more we try to crawl out of the hole of sin that we've dug ourselves into, the deeper the hole gets and the farther we slide into our own sin. We can't get there on our own. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't get it, Going to church isn't going to get you to heaven. Being baptized isn't going to get you to heaven. Um, being a good person isn't going to get you to heaven because someone has to pay for the wrongs that we've done and we can't bear that penalty. Well, praise God, we don't have to. Because the Scriptures tell us that while the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, there He is again. The Bible tells us that God loved the world enough, He loved you and loved me enough, recognizing that there was nothing that we could do to bring ourselves out of the depth of our own sinfulness, that He sent Jesus Christ to pay your debt. That the debt that you could not pay because you are sinful... Jesus paid for you on the cross of Calvary. So God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him puts their full faith and trust in the gift that Jesus Christ purchased shall not perish but have everlasting life. And that is the promise of the Gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. That He has earned the forgiveness of God that you could not and cannot earn. And that as Jesus Christ died on the cross to purchase for you a gift of salvation, He is now holding that gift out to you. And if you will accept that gift for yourself, if you will confess your sin and say, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior. I believe that He died on the cross. That He rose again the third day in victory over the grave. And I accept that gift for myself. Accepting it, believing on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved, the Scriptures tell us that you will be saved. 
and that all whom He accepts, He will not cast out. All who will come to Him, He will not turn away. If you've never made that decision this morning, may I first encourage you to make that decision today. You can do it there in your seat. You can pray silently, tell the Lord you know you're a sinner, that you know that you can't get yourself to heaven, but that you accept the gift of salvation purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross, that you're sorry for your sin, you confess your sin before Him, and that you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you will do that today, He will save you. But I speak in final application to we who are believers. First point, as we consider our application, is this. Those who, re- who reject the truth that Jesus is God have rejected God. This is an important point for you to understand. Many people will assert that many roads lead to God. Many people will assert that we are all children of God, if you've heard that before. And they're entitled to believe what they want to believe, but they're wrong. It's not true. On the authority of God's Word, that's not what the Bible says. We've already mentioned this reality, the fact that we know that there's only one true God through Christ alone should not work in us a superiority complex or some level of happiness in the the destruction of the wicked. It should overwhelm our spirits with the desperate need to help people out of the error of their sin. There are people all around us in this community that are lost and dying and going to hell. There are people that are mired in the consequences of their own poor choices. People who are drowning in the sins of this life. People who have nowhere else to turn and don't know where to turn. And perhaps, just perhaps, if you were to shine the light of the gospel into their heart, they would receive it with gladness. The atheists need Christ. The Muslims need Christ. The Buddhists need Christ. Secular humanists need Christ. And Christ has appointed His followers as His messengers. And remember that when you look around or you listen to the news or you read the newspaper and you read someone who has accepted a false god or who has rejected Jesus Christ, they are on their way to hell. And let's not, certainly not gloat or rejoice over that. And let that compel us to tell. Second application as we close. First, those who reject that Jesus is God have rejected God, make no mistake. Second, those who accept that Jesus is God ought to treat Jesus as God. The concept of God means that there is a supreme being. There is a being higher than you, greater than you, all-knowing, all-powerful. By the grace of this God, He has offered to allow you to enter into a personal relationship with Him through His Son. But just as God doesn't share His glory with idols and false gods, He will not share His glory with you. He wants you 100%. He wants not just your Sundays. He wants your everyday. He wants not just an hour in the morning. He wants all 24 hours of your day. He doesn't just want a portion of your heart. He wants your whole heart. And in a world that has rejected God through Christ, 
those who have accepted him and those who live for him are the testimony of God in this world. If you want people to see Jesus for who he is as the only true and living God, then we who know him ought to treat him like the only true and living God. If every knee shall bow to him one day, then we who know him ought to bow to him today. If every tongue shall confess him as Lord one day, then we who know him ought to confess him as Lord today. If every sin will be blotted out one day, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and remembered no more, then we ought to live as sinless followers of Christ to the best of our ability today. Now, none of us can be sinless. We know that. But we ought to live rejecting sin in this life. If God loves praise, then we ought to praise Him. If God loves obedience, then we ought to obey Him because Jesus is God. The world around us is very similar to the Philistines of years gone by. They pursue their own ends. They chisel false gods made in the image of created beings. They're devoid of the life that is found in the true and living God because the Scriptures tell us that in the Word is life and light, right? And if we are like Israel is or was in that day, Israel, the nation that sought to represent God but lived in their own power and for their own ends, doing our own thing, would it be any wonder then that the world around us worshiping their false God would see nothing special about us? But if we will instead live a life pleasing to God, then the light and the life of God through Christ will shine in us and will clearly manifest to the dark world around us the truth that Jesus is God alone. Let's pray together.